You're listening to the Fitness and Wellness Class, powered by NASM. NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org connected or call one 800 460 6276. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the 2020 NASM virtual conference. Um, I'm Dr. Jonathan Mike, and our presentation today, we're talking about a very interesting, uh, complex, but highly applicable topic, and that is on sleep. Not just sleep in and of itself, but sleep, science, and swollenness. We are going to have a lot of fun, a really interesting talk. And as we go through this, we will talk about a lot of things with the science application and what you can do as trainers and coaches to help your athletes and clients optimize the best sleep and how to really customize it for that person and even for yourself. So let's go ahead and get started. Now, sleep is a very uh, fascinating yet complex topic, and it has a tremendous amount of impact, not only on life, uh, but stress, but on a whole host of physiological, behavioral, and even uh, psychological uh, outcomes. Now, keep in mind, as we go through this, um, we're going to talk about the various sleep stages, what each sleep stage represents, um, what it means, how can it be applied, and what are some of the positive things that happen and what are some of the negative things that really happen with respect to either um, high quality of sleep or high quantity and what happens over the course of sleep that can have disastrous or deleterious effects. So keep that in mind as we actually go through this presentation. Now, something else to really keep in mind, much like other things within training or sports nutrition and uh, you know, physiology, there's a lot of inter-individual variability with how people actually respond to sleep. If you look at some of the, the basic research uh, with the National, National Sleep Foundation, you know, they obviously recommend anywhere from seven to nine hours of sleep. Obviously, that's recommended, but there's a lot of people that actually do really well on less sleep. So just because an organization recommends seven to nine, it doesn't mean that you have to achieve exactly nine hours. Maybe you fare better with seven hours. There's a lot of people out there, high-level executives, um, you know, people that work you know, odd jobs um, or, or whatever, uh, you know, what have you, um, with, with respect to certain types of careers, a lot of people really do well off, you know, five or six hours of sleep. So um, and that highly depends on, you know, your, your job, your state of mind, psychological outcomes, and, and really how you actually adapt over time um, to your what are called circadian rhythm responses, you know, within the brain. And so most of us, we actually look at sleep as like a, a singular component to life or the training cycle. And that's fine. But what we really need to do is look at the larger components uh, of that. There's sleep, there's training, there's various aspects and layers of stress. 
They all affect how well you sleep quality-wise or even quantity-wise. So while we typically think in a more of a, a, a narrow perspective of sleep, we want, we want you to get you to think in more of a, a broader, greater view of sleep and how it actually fits and integrates into the training process. And so historically, uh, there was an individual named uh, Nathaniel Kleitman, and he's typically known as like the father of modern sleep. And what's really interesting about this whole process is uh, prior to the invention of the incandescent light bulb by uh, Thomas Edison, um, during that time, there was no alarm clocks. Uh, there was no uh, iPhone for sure. There were no apps. Um, there were no you know, sleep apps and telling you when, you when you get up, when you have to go to sleep. And so what happened during that time is that they would actually have people go door to door and knock on the door several times in order for people to actually get up. And they did this, you know, several times throughout several years, again, prior to the invention of the incandescent light bulb. And so that's how people would actually wake up um, or, you know, go to sleep. Um, and so typically in the early 1950s, this is where we came up with the term REM sleep, or this is what's called rapid eye movement sleep. And again, historically, uh, it was reported that people got around 12 hours of sleep. I mean, oh my gosh, how would you love to sleep 12 hours? Uh, I've come across some people uh, in, in my time, they, they love to sleep 10, 11 hours. I mean, I have no idea how people do that, but um, historically, that was, that was really the case. Um, and so nowadays, because of our you know, culture, uh, you know, economic landscape, uh, and our careers, we typically sleep a lot less than uh, 12 hours. Some interesting facts, if you are an animal lover, um, I'm, I happen to be a dog lover myself, but dogs and cats sleep over half their lives, around 70%. Wouldn't it be fantastic if everybody was a cat and dog or mammal and you just run around, you play, you eat, and all you do is, is, is just sleep. Uh, you know, you don't have to go to work, you don't have to pay taxes um, or anything like that. And that's just fabulous. And so uh, what's also interesting is, uh, you know, man and woman are really the only mammals um, that willingly delay sleep. So really within the animal kingdom, you know, bears, you know, certainly hibernation is, is a big uh, a aspect of, you know, their lives. They sleep for, you know, several weeks, several months on end. Humans are pretty much the only ones out there that willingly delay sleep for some type of instant gratification or you sacrifice sleep to try to gain something else, you know, whether it's, it could be a, you know, workout, do you have to eat, you have to take care of your kids or you have work things. So we're the only ones that really willingly delay sleep for something else that we deem a little bit more uh, important. So it's really cool to throw out some, some cool facts for everybody to kind of get you to see historically how we arrived to where we are. Um, and so if we actually put a true definition to sleep, we can certainly say it's a reversible behavioral state in which an individual uh, is perceptually disengaged and unresponsive from their environment. And of course, um, the, how you actually get into sleep, we, we will get to in a few minutes, but your specific, what are called circadian rhythm responses are actually located within the anterior hypothalamus um, of the brain um, known as the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Uh, and this particular area of the hypothalamic uh, region of the brain, the anterior hypothalamus, is responsible for sleep timing, your actual sleep-wake cycle, sleep stages, 
um, various uh, aspects of mental acuity, uh, cognition, and alertness. So it's within this small region of the brain that allows you to have control over your sleep-wake cycle. And as we move through this presentation, you're gonna see very clearly of some things that positively affect your sleep-wake cycle and then negatively affect your sleep-wake cycle. So this is how these things are actually uh, controlled. Even um, things like light, um, you know, you read in your phone uh, at night instead of reading the book can certainly affect uh, your circadian rhythm response. You know, caffeine, alcohol, these types of things will be discussed as we actually move through this presentation. Now, if we continue to move forward with um, Sleep Science 101, we know that sleep is a both a physiological and behavioral state um, that is very complex, and but we always do it a really good job of trying to break it down very simple for everybody and give you the best uh, you know, application uh, that you can use for your clients and athletes and even for yourself. So two stages, REM sleep or rapid eye movement, and of course, um, non-rapid eye movement. And of course, the non-rapid eye movement is uh, classified and divided into four stages, five if you actually count the, the REM stage. And of course, if you look at even from, you know, uh, from the 70s, 80s, and of course, we presented some science here from the, from the early 2000s, when you actually fall asleep, this is, this is fascinating, when you fall asleep, uh, there's certain like neurotransmitters that are activated or down-regulated in order for you to actually fall asleep. So if you actually look um, on the, on the left-hand side, you know, you can see that uh, certain neurotransmitters uh, like norepinephrine and serotonin and even histamine um, do a really good job of kind of uh, temporarily shutting you down. Um, so these specific neurotransmitters are what's called like they're down-regulated. So you don't really need them uh, while you actually sleep. And so during this process, uh, you have what's called uh, a process called muscle atonia, which is essentially a like a paralysis type of sensation during sleep. So for example, this could be that, you know, you're, you're so relaxed, you're so focused, you're getting into stage one of, of sleep, um, and you feel like you might have a, a paralysis type of sensation, or maybe like a fear of like falling or something like that. Uh, it's not a bad thing, um, but it's just kind of what happens uh, during these specific stages of sleep. And so during this uh, course of time, you get bursts of REM sleep, which are very short. And of course, dreaming comes into play, uh, which we'll get to here a little bit more in, in detail in a few minutes. So you have these neurotransmitters that are uh, temporarily kind of shut down, uh, the norepinephrine, serotonin, and histamine. And then when you wake up, you have the opposite uh, effect. You actually have wake-promoting neurons. So epinephrine, um, you know, adrenaline, um, you have aspects and increases in sympathetic nervous system activity um, and the whole sympathetic drive or what we know as the fight or flight response. So as you can see, you know, during sleep and wake, um, these specific neurons either downregulate um, automatically um, or increase upon your sleep-wake cycle. Okay, um, and so what we're going to do now is that we're going to get into the various stages of sleep. We're going to talk about what each stage represents 
you know, all the details about it, what you actually need to know, you know, knowledge, application, so you can best decide how to gain quality of sleep, again, for clients and athletes. And as we go through these stages, uh, please note that um, every stage is not independent of one another. Uh, you will see uh, here in a minute that certain stages, for example, like in stage three and four, um, if you are constantly woke or get waken up by things, even maybe starting at stage one, it will negatively affect stage two. It will negatively affect stage three and stage four and so on. So let's just dive right in and see what we're actually dealing with. Okay, so stage one, this is a kind of like an introductory stage. So if you actually look um, at the total um, duration of sleep stage, which is color coded, and I took the liberty of color coding it for you, obviously it represents 100%. And so stage one, which is obviously in blue, that represents somewhere around 15%. Um, so it's actually the shortest duration of the total sleep stage and the lowest um, you know, percentage. Um, so in terms of duration, it's the shortest, shortest time and the lowest percentage. And so stage one represents what's called alpha and theta waves. And what's really fascinating about uh, stage one is uh, often where a lot of daydreaming comes into play. Now, some people may, let's kind of do a, a quick distinction for a second. A lot of people think of daydreaming as you just, you know, you're sitting there or maybe, you know, it could be at a conference or it could be in, in a class um, or whatever it is, you're sitting in front of the TV and you know you might be bored you're just kind of scrolling through uh you know the internet and that's you're just kind of daydreaming you're like a little aloof while that's true the context of this particular stage one sleep is that yes you do have some daydreaming but you actually fall asleep so in other words you can think of like stage one in the blue as more like the beginning transitional period another um fascinating aspect of stage one is that those who practice uh, you know, wellness methods and those that do various yoga and Pilates and various meditation practices tend to kind of what quote, hang out in stage one. And so, and this is where a lot of these processes, um, you know, uh, Chinese meditations, you know, things of that nature. Um, so all those types of practices uh, are really fall within the framework of stage one. Um, also within stage one, um, if you are going into a deeper sleep, you will often find and hear like strange, vivid sensations. Maybe somebody like calling your name um, or a fear of falling, you know, for example. These are not bad things, um, but this is almost like your body um, trying to defend itself as a defense mechanism from actually getting hurt. And during this process, you have what's called a term called um, hypogonic hallucinations, which is really a collective term about different sounds and sensations. Um, and it's essentially a transition between, you know, going to sleep and then actually going into a uh, deep sleep. So stage two and then stage three, stage four, uh, and then stage five. So just to kind of repeat, so stage one is, you know, alpha theta waves are very slow. It's a transitional period where the daydreaming comes in, except you actually fall asleep, you start to kind of maybe get a paralysis type of sensation, um, you know, strange, vivid sensations, um, and, and that sort of thing, these hypogonic hallucinations. Um, and so stage one is almost like a, you know, transition type of phase. 
If we actually go into stage two, which is in red, you can see that in terms of the total duration, it takes up almost 50%, but the amount of time is still relatively short, which is around 20 minutes. Um, during this particular stage, um, you have what are called sleep spindles. Um, and sleep spindles are really the hallmark of uh, non-rapid eye movement. And some people may ask sleep spindles, does that correspond to like muscle spindles? And while the, the term spindles is included with both of those, um, it's important to make a, a really good distinction that muscle spindles are actually found within the actual muscle fiber itself. And they're responsible for increases in stretch and tension of a muscle. Sleep spindles are very completely different um, and they're actually located uh, you know, within the hypothalamus, within that suprachiasmatic nucleus. And they are responsible for sudden bursts of, of brain activity um, generated in that reticular you know, nucleus area. And so often you will get various physiological responses. Uh, this is where we have a reduced uh, respiration rate, uh, lower blood pressure, lower heart rate responses. Um, and then now you're kind of getting into the dream cycle. Um, and so as you can see, you have a, a, an interesting transition period phase. And so um, if you're in stage one and you have a trouble falling asleep, that will certainly transition its negative effects into stage two. And then as you will see, it can subsequently affect uh, all other stages, which will certainly affect the lowered quantity and even quality of sleep. And so if we transition into stage three and stage four, and this is probably my favorite stage um, within the actual total duration of sleep stages. And so stage three and four are often combined. And usually um, uh, they correspond to what's called SWS, and that is called slow wave sleep. And during stage three and stage four, this is where we come up with a term, and this is, this is kind of a colloquial term, um, the swollenness aspect. So during stage three and stage four, this is the stage where people gain the most anabolic responses from training. So the repair, the regeneration of muscle tissue, uh, repair regeneration from muscle damage that occurred into you know, previous or prior workouts. Um, this is the stage where um, the large amounts of growth hormone um, uh, stem from, from the uh, posterior um, uh, hypothalamus, um, in a sense. So um, this is where growth hormone responses come in. Um, this is where the swollenness happens. Um, and of course, uh, one interesting aspect about um, stage three and stage four that also affects stage one and stage two, particularly in stage three, um, you can have certain individuals, as I said earlier, you have a very large inter-individual response um, to sleep. And so, for example, in stage one, um, you can what's called like these very light sleepers. So individuals can be awake or get awake from like a pin dropping on the floor uh, or a whisper or the wind, you know, or something of that nature. If you're somebody like that, but yet you are in a very deep sleep within stage three and stage four, it is very difficult to actually wake the person. So a lot of you probably experienced this. Somebody is trying to wake you up and they have to tap your shoulder or your arm or your foot or your leg, you know, several times in order for you to actually wake up. So 
This is why people have a difficult time waking up. It's because they're actually in deep sleep, deep REM sleep within stage three, and it's often very difficult to uh, wake the person. Um, and so the, to kind of um, extend on that a little bit, if you have sleep deprivation issues, so if stage one, you have a problem, and then it transitions into stage two difficulty. Um, so if you have um, increases in like daytime sleepiness, for example, uh, it will absolutely affect your reductions in performance, uh, you know, uh, mental prosperity, uh, alertness, and you know, functions of daily life. Um, if you have to do writing, you have to think, your cognitive function, or perhaps even a little bit more complex activities, you know, like driving, thinking. So oftentimes when people have um, sleep disorders, it often occurs, the, the deeper part of it often occurs within stage three and stage four. And sometimes it actually starts within stage one, transitioning to stage two, and then stage three and stage four. Um, so these individuals um, obviously have to see a doctor for um, their, their certain type of sleep disorder. Um, often those who um, have uh, or wear CPAP or, or snore heavily, um, this is the stage where a lot of lack of recovery will take place, particularly in stage three and stage four. And again, it can actually start even at stage one or even stage two. And so if you move into stage five, um, stage five is actual like REM sleep, like deeper REM sleep, but you can see it only takes up about a quarter of the actual total sleep stage. However, it lasts for about 90 to 120 minutes of a night's sleep. And this is where you get a lot of higher uh, respiratory uh, you know, rates, um, higher brain activities. Um, and so again, if you keep waking up prior to this stage, you know, your motor skill uh, will go down tremendously. Um, and so uh, this is where you actually get into the really deep dreams. Not that you don't get into any dreams in stage three and stage four, but I'm talking like the really deep dreams that, um, you know, there's these deja vu types of occurrences um, or things that upon waking up, you actually totally remember your dream. So that's really what happens in stage five. And what's interesting is that the length of a dream uh, varies significantly. Uh, it can vary from, you know, 30 seconds all the way up to, you know, maybe five, six, seven minutes. So it, it varies tremendously. And so during the aspect of these dreams, uh, you get, you know, visual sensations. They could be like sexual themes, um, uh, black and white, you know, versus color, you know, phenomenon. Um, and oftentimes, again, you will get a, like a, a paralyzing type of effect um, that you might feel like you're, you're falling of some kind. Um, but this, again, this is not a bad thing. Uh, this is like a protective mechanism that your body uses to actually keep you from hurting yourself. So if we can kind of repeat of where we are, um, you can see like stage one, again, is the store, shortest um, sleep stage, alpha theta waves, people that do yoga, meditation, um, Pilates type of, of, of practices, they typically hang out in stage one. Stage two is about 25%. Um, you know, this is where um, you get into some of the hypogamic, uh, you know, hallucinations. Um, stage three, stage four, um, you get into more of the dreaming aspects, um, the, the deep swollenness, the recovery, the regeneration phases. Um, and again, getting into the dream cycles. And then uh, stage five, REM sleep, the heavy, hardcore dreams. 
um, the length of a dreams, of course, anywhere from 30 seconds to maybe up to five or seven minutes. Um, so just to kind of repeat um, what each stage actually represents, what occurs during each aspect of the dreaming cycle and what happens positively and what happens negatively. So again, excuse me, if you have trouble sleeping from stage one, two or three, it will negatively impact your ability um, going into the subsequent stage. And then you tend to make up for it um, during the day, possibly with taking naps. And we will get to that very shortly. Okay, so if we kind of transition a little bit into sleep recovery and training, um, it's really no doubt if you are a client, um, you're training, you have a trainer, um, coaches, athletes, or even a general uh, population individual, it's no doubt that everybody needs um, quality and quantity of sleep, you know, seven to nine hours. Sometimes people get six. Um, and of course, we know that the recovery cycle is extremely important for regeneration and recovery of muscle tissue, you know, thermal regulation, uh, the cognitive function process. Uh, and of course, I uh, often argue that sleep is one of the uh, hallmark characteristics of foundational recovery along with other uh, aspects. But at the same time, poor sleep quality is a very large aspect and marker of under-recovery and often uh, contributes to uh, overreaching, overtraining, while those two are certainly uh, uh, broader topics and outside the scope of this particular presentation, uh, it, it goes to show that um, poor sleep certainly is uh, uh, representative and even contributes um, to aspects of overtraining uh, and even um, un under recovery. And so moving on from there, uh, now we're kind of getting into more of the science. I mean, don't you just love it? Um, if you look at a study, um, even more recent study from, from 2015, um, how do athletes actually respond to sleep uh, prior to their uh, competition? So anybody who's ever competed in anything before, I know I have, uh, I'm a former strongman competitor, and now I'm starting to do some more, uh, you know, martial arts stuff. Uh, I'm not sure about actually competing in it, but just to, you know, learn different skills. How do athletes and clients actually respond to sleep prior to, to really having the competition? And it's really interesting. And so a study from 2015 examined 103 athletes' pre-competitive mood and subsequent performance. Um, and, it, and, it, and it should be no surprise that the night before competitions, um, all athletes slept well under the recommended uh, value of, of eight hours. Um, I've experienced that before. Uh, and, and the main reason for that is because when you're going into a competition, it's just hard to really be relaxed. Um, and that's because uh, you have a higher nighttime uh, adrenaline levels. You have higher um, uh, norepinephrine and sympathetic nervous system drives that affect your sleep cycle and of course that affects the psychological outcome you know, as well. So it's really no surprise that a lot of athletes and competitors uh, don't really sleep well the night before uh, you know, competition. So 70% of athletes experiencing poor sleep than usual, um, you know, anxiety, you know, noise, um, you know, uh, thinking about the competition, going through in their minds about you know, the movements, especially if it's, a, if it's a sport or like an exercise that can be technically demanding. You know, um, in strongman competitions, there's certain technical aspects to that. You know, same thing in powerlifting. Maybe it's gymnastics. You know, maybe it's swimming. Whatever the case may be. And so, 
Early event times, most commonly reported causes of sleep, disrupted sleep, you know, the night prior to competition. Uh, again, um, you're having a higher sympathetic drive um, that is causing you to uh, have a, a, a prolonged sleep latency. So I mean, it takes longer to actually fall asleep. And so, well, I mentioned this a few minutes ago, what happens when somebody is totally uh, sleep deprived? And so it should be no uh, surprise that um, sleep deprivation has a whole host of, of negative and potential consequences. And some of those are, yes, physiological, but also metabolic consequences. Um, so altered glucose control, for example, um, abnormal cortisol release, um, hormonal imbalance, such as lower testosterone, especially in men. Um, and so loss of sleep impacts certainly a variety, a wide variety of physiological outcomes, um, hormonal imbalances. And so um, this is not a, an actual exhaustive list, um, but it just kind of highlights some major components involved with sleep loss. Um, are, are there some ways that you can try to combat this? Yes, there are. We'll talk about some methods, what you can do to try to enhance sleep um, and things that may negatively impact your ability to sleep. So again, not an exhaustive list, um, but here's some things that, that go along with overall sleep deprivation. And we'll kind of get into some of the specifics um, as we proceed. Now, a lot of people ask, well, you know, Dr. Mike, I want to get strong. You know, I want strength and power. I want to gain some hypertrophy. You know, what are we talking about with respect to the science when it comes to strength, you know, and power or even hypertrophy, especially if you have sleep loss? Well, if you look at some of the um, studies, even from the mid late 90s, uh, this was a study done uh, 24 hours of sleep deprivation in US college weightlifters. Uh, they use a randomized counterbalance design. And so what's interesting about this is that there were no differences in any of the actual performance tasks. So like the snatch, the clean, um, the jerk, um, or front squat, total volume and training intensity. The actual task, I mean, their ability to perform the task really didn't change that much. Um, you know, following 24 hours of sleep deprivation versus no sleep deprivation. However, um, your performance um, in terms of sleep loss um, significantly altered, you know, confusion. So your vigor, your fatigue, um, total mood disturbances, all negatively impacted by sleep deprivation. So it, it means that while your ability to perform the actual task or movement may not really change because you had sleep deprivation, increased confusion, vigor, fatigue, mood disturbances, that can essentially, you know, potentially affect your ability to do the task. Again, there's, there's high individual variability, but performance declines was also exhibited uh, in isokinetic knee extension and flexion torque after 30 hours of sleep deprivation, even in well-trained individuals. Uh, 30 hours of sleep deprivation is a very long time. Um, and so, you know, even a very acute uh, bout of that, you can definitely see decreases in uh, uh, performance for sure. Okay, so the take home message uh, with sleep, sleep loss will affect your ability to get swole, to get jacked, um, and your ability to have regeneration and repair of muscle tissue. Again, um, high inter individual variability does exist. 
um, you know, uh, so a really interesting story is that one of my, uh, you know, PhD mentors, um, he has done various sleep studies, you know, throughout his career. Um, and he gets about five hours of sleep a night. His typical schedule is he goes to bed at maybe eight or nine o'clock at night. Uh, he gets up at like one or two in the morning. Um, and sometimes he'll sleep into maybe 3 a.m. And he's up all the rest of the, you know, the early morning up all the rest of the day. And he's been doing it for like 25 years. Um, and he speaks uh, and travels 40 plus weeks out of the year. And of course, you know, he knows it's not healthy. And I do believe he uses like a sleep compliance, you know, machine. Um, but it can certainly affect just another example of how even uh, travel circadian rhythm responses are certainly affected um, from um, sleep deprivation and lack of quality and qual quantity of sleep. Okay, so um, let's kind of talk about a little bit about hormones. Um, uh, for example, testosterone, life is best with more test. Say it, life is best with more test. Uh, I've often stated, because um, I love talking about hormones, that higher testosterone responses in men um, are, are way more of a good thing uh, when you're actually more risk of having lower testosterone than you are of ever, ever having like higher testosterone. Um, we may not, we're not getting into the numbers in terms of the ranges per se, um, but just from a, a health perspective, an optimal health perspective, it's always best to have uh, higher testosterone levels. And so men uh, slept less than five hours a night for one week. Uh, and the lab has significantly lower test levels, um, over 10% versus individuals who actually got a full night's sleep. Um, so testosterone typically peaks um, after around the first three hours uh, of, of deep sleep, um, at least in young individuals, um, around the time they actually first get into the first stages of REM sleep. And of course, as you age, you typically have decreases of testosterone responses um, say, you know, age 20, you know, to age 40, age 40 to 50, 50 to 60. Um, so the higher testosterone levels that you can elicit or maintain throughout life uh, from a health perspective, it, it's actually better uh, for optimal health, but, but not only for health, also for sleep as well. So um, guys and, you know, pretty much anybody, um, uh, higher testosterone responses will definitely help you sleep better um, and have a, a more optimal effect on performance. And so if we kind of continue with some of the research from 2011, so um, they performed a study, uh, three nights sleeping 10 hours, um, eight consecutive nights sleeping less than five hours. Um, so blood samples, uh, they did every 15 to 30 minutes after 24 hours um, during the day of 10 hours and five hours. Um, so sleep loss on testosterone was apparent even after just one week of decreased sleep. And so after five hours of decreased sleep, their testosterone decreased by 10 to 15%. So after five hours of decreased sleep, their testosterone went down 10 to 15%. So that's just five hours. So now you can see if that occurs, even on a, a acute basis or repetitive or even a chronic level, you can see very easily how testosterone uh, can have a, a negative effect on your performance. So men had the lowest testosterone levels in the afternoon on sleep restricted days between 2 and 10 p.m. So if you are sleep restricted between 2 and 10 p.m., you had the lowest testosterone levels. Um, so young men reported a decline in their sense of well-being, among other things, uh, in accordance with 
uh, you know, fatigue, you know, uh, decreased mental awareness, uh, and those other types of markers. So you can see very clearly based on the science and the you know practical application of training how testosterone plays a very large role. Uh, if we move into growth hormone, um, growth hormone um, is secreted from uh, the anterior uh, pituitary um, uh, 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 of your brain. And so uh, growth hormone is kind of like intermittently secreted. It comes in waves. Uh, it's like an, an, it has an, an apocytal type of fashion. So it's, it's intermittently um, secreted during sleep um, and it is undoubtedly totally and directly related um, to the cyclic nature of slow wave sleep. So if you remember during stage three, this is where we get the larger anabolic and growth hormone responses um, to sleep. And so sleep deprivation for multiple nights undoubtedly will totally crush uh, your growth hormone responses um, and will definitely change your sleep-wake cycle. Um, and you can see like, you know, typically based on the actual graph, um, they typically start to peak um, you know, around noon in terms of the first response, they typically die down during the day and they typically come back up uh, and, and peak um, again around somewhere around midnight, um, you know, based on the science. And so a lot of times that people will have sleep deprivation, they lack sleep. A lot of times your body will try and compensate for this during normal waking hours. Um, and then people try to also compensate with this to stay awake with, you know, uh, caffeine or energy drinks, um, or these, you know, these pick me up types of supplements, uh, could be pills. It could be drinks, you know, liquids, whatever it may be. Uh, or maybe a, a smarter approach would be to actually take a nap, uh, which we'll get to that here, you know, pretty soon. And so another other main hormone, which is cortisol. Um, now cortisol is really interesting because yes, cortisol is a stress hormone. And so a lot of people look at cortisol as like, it's all bad. Well, it's not really bad um, uh, in an acute sense because it is indicative of not only a training response, but acute cortisol responses actually go up um, uh, in part uh, and in response to uh, a larger volume workout and in response to training stress, particularly like with exercise intensity. Um, but cortisol in and of itself um, has a large uh, factors of you know, really affecting it, like fasting, for example. Um, not really like two or three hours, um, but maybe um, around like eight hours. You know, you get into the 12, 14, you know, uh, uh, 16 hour fast that people often do um, as, as part of their strategy to maybe, you know, lo lose body composition. But fasting, uh, food intake has a tremendous impact on cortisol responses, you know, exercising, your sleep-wake cycle. Um, psychosocial stressors, um, and we'll kind of come back to that here in a few minutes, um, but psychosocial stressors um, is essentially things that affect not only cortisol responses, but um, how you, your behavioral uh, uh, manifestations. Um, uh, you know, you have job stress, you have life stress, you know, you're moving and getting married, I mean, all within like a three month period. Um, so your, your, your training uh, is not going to be the best. Uh, maybe you don't like your job. Maybe your boss doesn't squat or deadlift. You know, maybe they don't do pushups, you know, during their off hours or whatever it is. You know, anything can really trigger people um, to really elicit these psychosocial stressors. And so um, cortisol, if you look at the, uh, the, the, um, the animation, 
Cortisol really rises rapidly um, in the night and typically peaks uh, in, in the early morning stages. And of course, again, uh, there's a lot of different responses to how people respond to cortisol. And so if we kind of look at this um, animation uh, again, you can see, um, you know, morning time, uh, you know, you wake up uh, naturally, um, your body, you know, wakes up maybe around, you know, uh, 7.30. Um, and of course, you know, uh, you go through your normal sleep-wake cycles. Um, and then cortisol comes up, uh, you wake up again, and then it kind of has this pattern of sleep-wake, um, you know, timing in a sense. So you wake up around 7.30, and you know your body wakes up around 7.30, and you go through the normal cycle. Um, but let's just say you're, you're traveling, um, you didn't get in a nap, you didn't get any food intake, um, and so maybe you fall asleep, you know, or wake up, say, like 7.30, but your body is actually 10.30, um, so it's 10.30, but your body feels like it's 7.30 or it's 7.30 and your body feels like it's 10.30, maybe because um, you travel through various time zones. And of course, that throws off the, all the hormonal you know, cycles. Um, but what, uh, a study from 2015 uh, found that the majority of recent science on cortisol and sleep deprivation shows either uh, no change or just really slight increases. Some studies even normalize the difference and increase overall exposure to cortisol, you know, during the day. So um, to kind of reiterate, there's a lot of factors that affect cortisol responses, you know, food intake, your exercise response, uh, time travel, you know, hydration, uh, various psychosocial factors. Um, but, but in a normal situation, um, your internal clock, your circadian rhythm response wakes up at 7.30, your body says it's 7.30, would you have uh, negative consequences to sleep? You know, you may be, it may be 7.30, but it's actually, you know, 10.30 is what your body's saying. Um, so it really depends on, you know, environmental factors and all those other things that can potentially affect cortisol uh, positively or even uh, negatively. And so cognition, um, and so it, it's pretty straightforward. Um, you do have decreases in effects of learning and memory. Um, and so 24 hours of sleep deprivation significantly heighten the levels of stress hormones and lowered attention with working memory, um, even subjects in their early 20s. Um, despite the fact that this particular study, they were actually all really good sleepers and really did not have a history of medical or even some type of, you know, neuro, um, you know, psychopathic, uh, you know, disease or some type of sleep, you know, disorder. So there's no question, um, lack of sleep certainly affects your ability to think uh, and operate uh, or even operate a motor vehicle, as they say. Okay, so now, there's a lot of factors that affect sleep. Now, if you remember the very beginning of this presentation, I told you guys that most people look at sleep as a singular thing, and they just look at this um, particular bullet point. But we've often um, discussed the emotional control um, aspect and functional aspect of sleep, um, the psychological aspect, We've touched on the social, um, psychosocial parameters of sleep, um, how it actually affects the training responses um, well, with strength and power, um, you know, with uh, testosterone, with growth hormone, with uh, cortisol releases, you know, physiological, how sleep actually affects the respiratory rate, you know, behavioral uh, uh, abnormalities, um, and attention, arousal, and even metabolic factors, you know, with glucose control and things of that nature. So. Um, I want you guys to really keep in mind when people talk about factors that affect sleep, all of these can be both, this is really important, all of these 
can be both independent of one another, but undoubtedly can totally affect every other single aspect from training. So for example, if your training sucks, um, and you, if you have a lot of stress in your life because of moving, um, you know, relationship, you know, stressors. Um, so these two training and psychosocial stressors can combine. Um, that can also affect physiological function, which will affect sleep, ultimately totally affecting almost every aspect of your performance. Um, and so um, it is often stated that sleep can certainly, um, you know, regulate all these other factors, but at the same time, training in and of itself can often regulate all these other factors. So it's okay to look at each one independently, but you gotta think critically and analytically and application people, application. Um, so keep in mind all these factors that affect sleep. Okay, now let's really kind of get into really the cool aspect. Let's talk about um, this section is called the swole train. So here's how to really improve sleep, maintain sleep, um, get the increases in swollenness and recovery and regeneration. So let's talk some naps. Oh my gosh, folks, I love naps. I mean, who doesn't love naps? Um, naps have a tremendous benefit um, to the sleep-wake uh, cycle. And so oftentimes, um, you know, naps can come in maybe five to 15 minutes. Not really sure who takes five-minute naps. Um, but upwards of 15 minutes to even over, you know, an hour, hour and a half nap. Um, and so particularly um, naps are very beneficial with respect to um, your, your training schedule, particularly if you train a double, maybe even triple sessions. Um, so you have a training uh, session in the morning, you have a training session in the afternoon. It's very common for even clients, particularly high level athletes to take a nap in between, uh, you know, training sessions to help optimize, you know, performance. Um, there are factors that affect the benefits of naps. And of course, um, you know, your circadian timing of the actual nap. Oftentimes, um, you know, people get up at maybe, you know, 4 or 5 a.m. Either they go to work or just get up and start working at their house. It's very common for people to, you know, maybe take a nap around, uh, you know, 11.30, you know, 12 noon. And oftentimes with the naps, this is important. Um, typically, if you take a nap after 3 or 4 o'clock, it will extend your timing and your ability to actually go to sleep at your regular sleep-wake cycle. So if you take a nap at three or four o'clock, you know, for 30 minutes or an hour, and then you try to go to sleep at your normal time at like 10 p.m., it oftentimes won't work because you've actually extended the sleep latency period. You've extended your time to actually fall asleep. And that could be an hour, that could be two hours, uh, particularly if you may have like, you know, caffeine or an energy drink or maybe alcohol that will also have a combined um, effect for your ability to fall asleep at your normal sleep wake cycle, which again, go back to the sleep duration periods. It will affect stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, stage five. So everybody understands how all these little things affect your ability to sleep. So uh, a little bit more on naps. So um, following a, a 30 minute nap, 20 meter sprint performance was increased and alertness was increased and sleepiness was decreased compared to the individuals that had a no nap trial. Um, so the afternoon nap lowered heart rate, lower body temperature. They had greater alertness, um, uh, sleepiness, short-term memory, accuracy of an eight choice reaction time 
were all improved by taking your glorified, amazing, awesome naps. Um, even people that did post-lunch naps, um, there's a lot of people that actually do that, especially if you are a shift worker. I know, for example, uh, you know, my grandfather and my grandparents, uh, they had a, a vegetable and produce stand on the haymarket for like 50 years. They would go in the morning, he would come back, have lunch uh, to the house, take a nap, and then go back in the afternoon. And he actually lived to 100. So uh, hell, I mean, uh, maybe naps help you live a lot longer. We'll definitely uh, have to see. But there's no question that based on the science we are presenting here, that naps have a fundamental improvement in your ability to function. All right, let's get into some of the more nutritional aspects. Um, carb usages, um, everybody loves carbs. And so um, what carbs do, particularly with sleep, is that it tends to release a little bit more melatonin and serotonin uh, responses. And so, um, and, and even really early research from the early 1980s, and of course there's even neuroscience, but just to show you that uh, this has been around for quite some time, uh, early work provided uh, six male subjects, so not a very high subject count, with a high carbohydrate meal. Now, just to kind of give you some perspective here, in this particular study, their high carb meal was 130 grams. By today's standards, 130 grams is actually low, low carb, uh, what is considered like lower carb. And so just to kind of give you some perspective and, and compare and contrast what this study did versus what people actually do by today's standards. So low carb meal, which was 47 grams. So they had a high carb meal, um, uh, 130 grams. And really by today's standards, um, I think I, I need to self-correct myself, um, a high carb meal in this particular study was 130 grams, but by today's standards, in reality, that's not really high carb. Um, but in the study, it was. The low carbohydrate meal in this study was 47 grams. By today's standards, that actually is considered low carb uh, or a meal containing no carbs 45 minutes prior to actually going to sleep. And they found that the higher carb meal, uh, again, this was only 130 grams in this study, increased REM sleep and decreased um, uh, light sleep and then wakefulness. So carbohydrates, um, it doesn't have to be a lot, you know, it can be, you know, a piece of toast, um, you know, or some yogurt or some type of, you know, protein shake, which we'll get here in a second, we'll talk about protein. Um, but carbohydrates certainly tend to uh, enhance um, the sleep um, because of the increases in melatonin and so serotonin responses. And so, um, what if you actually kind of like mix different types of carbohydrates? So high versus low glycemic index meals. Um, the high GI meal in this particular study um, from 2007, the high GI meal increased improved sleep onset latency versus the low GI meal and providing the meal four hours before sleep was actually better than providing the meal one hour before sleep. Now, let's kind of get some context here. Nobody is saying that you should not eat an hour before you go to sleep. Oftentimes people will have maybe a very light snack or a protein shake um, to help re repair regeneration of muscle tissue during sleep. But um, you have um, uh, um, you know, differences in carbohydrates um, with uh, meals um, and you, know, you don't really need to eat a large Papa John's pizza while, uh, an hour before you actually go to sleep. So mixed meals, so that's carbohydrates. So I want to talk about mixed meals, um, more of a mixed meal, but low carb diet, 
So 1% carbohydrate, really high fat, 61%, uh, you know, moderate high protein, 38%, or the control group, high carb, low fat, lower protein. They found that the VLCD, which actually is a very low carbohydrate diet, increased slow wave sleep in all stages of, of, of sleep in the non-REM, uh, whereas the control diet decreased REM sleep. So different types of carbohydrate mixed meals versus carbs alone. Um, again, um, carbohydrate rich meals for sleepiness. If you have night shift workers, um, they tend to do better with a, maybe a carbohydrate enriched meal, um, increase the duration of the sleep in obese workers. But those types of higher carbohydrate meals, you know, may influence sleepiness, particularly if it's a large carbohydrate meal, maybe two or 300 grams versus maybe, you know, maybe 50 to like 100 grams. All right, so the take-home message here, carbs, very helpful strategy. Um, mixed meal compositions, it varies depending on uh, the percentage of carbs, fats, or proteins. You know, you could have maybe a bowl of oatmeal um, or, or even like maybe a glass of milk. It could be a warm glass of milk, maybe some cinnamon, some type of yogurt. Um, so protein, no surprise here. Uh, 40 grams of casein protein, 30 minutes before sleep was very effective uh, in the rapid rise of amino acids. Uh, which are, are heightened over the course of sleep. Uh, mixed, mu mixed muscle protein synthesis rates um, were higher in the people that, that took in the protein versus the placebo group. Um, it's very common and well-known taking in protein prior to sleep, particularly K casein uh, or even combinations of casein or whey can do wonders for improving swollenness uh, and recovery and regeneration of training. Um, one of the things that I will say um, in terms of strategies to help improve sleep is limit the caffeine, limit the alcohol. But however, nobody's saying, you know, well, Dr. Mike, don't ever have caffeine or don't, don't ever have alcohol. You know, that's not what I'm saying. You know, there's, there are some health benefits, you know, to lower to moderate uh, alcohol consumption. But in, in the context of sleep quality, you want to try and stay away from caffeine uh, as much as possible, you know, 30 minutes to an hour before sleep. Same thing with alcohol. Um, alcohol tends to uh, kind of rebound and REM sleep and kind of suppress the um, stages, particularly in stage one, which can certainly affect stage two uh, and stage three. Caffeine, it really depends on the dose. Some people, if they're really tired, like for me, for example, if I'm super tired, maybe if I'm traveling, caffeine does nothing for me and I have no problem actually going to sleep. Some people, it affects it differently, uh, but it depends on the type of caffeine, you know, the dose. Um, and if it's a light roast, which tends, tends to have more caffeine versus a dark roast, but often um, what's called a half-life of caffeine. So for example, um, if you're taking 350 milligrams of caffeine at 9 a.m., um, by 12 noon, one o'clock, you still have about 150 to 200 milligrams of caffeine. Half-life of caffeine is somewhere in a three to six hour range. So be careful with uh, caffeine and alcohol. Um, and those are some things that you wanna stay away uh, with sleep. If we kind of uh, move quickly into the swollenmentation part, some supplements that you can use to try and enhance sleep. Um, tryptophan, uh, you can find this over the counter. It's very common. Um, typically low doses is as one gram can uh, really improve sleep latency um, and subjective to sleep quality. Um, you know, trying to go to sleep a little bit faster. Um, oftentimes the supplements is called 5-HTP or 5-hydroxytryptophan. You can buy it over the counter by itself. Uh, it's often found in a lot of other sleep uh, combinations with some supplements. Uh, valerian, um, it tends to bind and increase to what's called the GABA receptors, 
or gamma aminobutyric um, acid, excuse me, which is um, brain activity behavior, behavioral states affecting sleep and, and, and wake cycles. Um, and so that can be also purchased over the counter. Uh, GABA has been known to increase growth hormone secretions, um, which typically can aid again in your ability to get swole um, and, and stage three of sleep. Uh, tart cherry juice, um, some interesting research on tart cherry juice from 2010 um, have significant reductions in insomnia. Um, however, no improvements based on this study in sleep latency, total sleep time, or efficiency versus a placebo. Tart cherry juice is very good. Um, again, it has higher levels of melatonin. However, um, you often have to take a lot of tart cherry juice to get a higher response of the melatonin concentrations. Um, at the same time, these types of drinks tend to have a lot of sugar in them. So if we're trying to, you know, watch sugar intake, you might want to be a little bit careful of how much you consume with tart cherry juice. Melatonin and magnesium, um, you know, very common. Uh, magnesium creates a very calming effect um, to try to enhance sleep quality from research from 2009. Um, with respect to magnesium, it's best to try and get a magnesium that is paired with an amino acid, um, like a, a, a gluconate or a glycinate versus an oxide. Magnesium oxides typically don't absorb very well. So whenever you're looking on a label, you can look at a glycinate or a gluconate, something that's actually paired with an amino acid. It's better absorption and it tends to have more positive effects. So take home message with supplements. Uh, they're great for having positive effects. Certainly not a complete list, but some of the more common uh, over-the-counter things that you can actually buy. Um, again, just because science may or may not show something to be effective, uh, if you take it and if you like it and feel that it actually works for you, and then, then continue to do so. Okay. Um, how to actually sleep better. Um, number one, sleep hygiene. Um, try to sleep in a cooler, darker room. Try not to um, sleep or try to fall asleep with the TV on or look at your phone. Um, if you do or have to look at your phone, you might want to use um, blue light blocking glasses either for your TV or for your phone. I actually have some of those myself when I use them. And within 30 to 40 minutes, I'm, I'm ready to go to sleep. Uh, training times. And, you know, if you want to work out in the morning or at night, um, depending on people's schedule, maybe it's nighttime and training at 9 and 10 o'clock is the only time they actually have, you know, to really, you know, to train. Um, for the most part, it doesn't seem to really affect your ability to, to sleep, um, you know, but work it out right before you go to sleep. You know, it may be suboptimal. We talk about carbohydrates and mixed carbohydrate meals. And of course, you know, do some relaxation types of uh, techniques to yoga, meditation, deep breathing, a deep diaphragmatic, uh, you know, breathing. Um, those things are always very helpful uh, with trying to lower the um, sympathetic nervous system response and try to really elevate the parasympathetic response. And so, again, many factors affecting sleep. Uh, we've gone through this. So think globally, always think critically, think uh, analytically. Um, sleep is just one of the many components to um, the drivers of performance. Okay. And so um, I just wanted to say thank you for uh, NASN for having me speak again at their Atoma conference for this year's virtual conference. Uh, it's been great. Um, uh, hopefully I'll be back you know, next year. Um, here's a way to contact me, contact me through Facebook, uh, Twitter, and uh, Instagram. I'm active on all of these social media platforms. Uh, I post content regularly. And if you have any questions, 
uh, please reach out to me um, and I'll be glad to actually uh, help you. So thank you so much again for NSN for having me speak at this year's Optima Conference. Thank you for joining on my sleep science and swollenness talk and you guys have a great day.